The Art of Being Human presents podcast on the work of Byron Katie. This episode is part of the Why the Work Works series, which focuses on inspiring, explaining and enhancing your praxis through a theoretical understanding of how the work works. This is session four, How the Work Works with Ernest Holmes Svensson. For more podcasts on the work of Byron Katie, go to www.theartofbeinghuman.dk slash podcasts. And now session four, how the work works. Hello, my name is Ernest, and in this the fourth episode of the Why the Work Works series, I'm going to use what we've been through so far to help you get a clear understanding of exactly what the work is, how it works, and what the key elements in the process are. As I've said a couple of times, I invite you to this clarification because it's my experience that in the case of the work, having an overall understanding of the territory before you step in will help you tremendously later on. Once you're done with this episode, however, to my mind, you know all you need to know in terms of preparation, and it will be the perfect time for you to continue on to the How to Do the Work series and begin experimenting with the actual practice. So that will be my invitation. But first, how does the work work? I used to work in a video store, and I was convinced that my boss didn't think I was doing a good enough job. Every time he was nearby, I got flustered and nervous, doing my very best to do everything right, which obviously only had the effect of making me tense and clumsy. One day, as I was putting videos on the shelves, he suddenly called me into his office. Very worried, I put my things down and went in. I was trying to work out what I'd done wrong and wondering if he was about to fire me. But when I sat down in the chair in front of his desk, he told me that he was very pleased with my work and wanted to know if I'd like to take on a few more shifts at the store. Before my boss called me into his office, I was a young man putting videos on a shelf. After I'd been in to see him, I was a young man putting videos on a shelf. The situation was exactly the same. Nothing in the outside world was different. But one moment I was stressed and worried, and the next I was happy and calm, and the only thing that had changed was what I believed. As I've attempted to demonstrate in the earlier episodes, our world is created by our beliefs. It's our beliefs that generate the framework for our thoughts, our actions, and the way we perceive what's going on around us. I don't know whether what my boss told me that day was true. Maybe he was lying when he said he thought I was doing a good job. Maybe he was just desperate for staff. But I believed him, and so my reality shifted. And with that shift came a new sense of certainty and calm, which unlocked exactly those qualities in me that ended up making me one of the most trusted and appreciated employees in the store. 
If I could have pushed my beliefs about my boss's view on me aside earlier, I would have. I tried. I tried to convince myself that I was just being silly. I tried to tell myself that I was imagining things. But it didn't work. Because we can't choose what we believe in. We don't have administrative access to these parts of our mind. We can't decide for ourselves what to be afraid of or who to fall in love with. If you don't believe in God, you can't just decide to do so. And if you believe your boss doesn't like you, you can't just decide that he probably does. Why? Because our map of reality is shaped by our experiences. It's what happens, or rather what we interpret as happening, that form our belief system, and experiences reach far more deeply into our nervous system than any number of rational arguments and logical deliberation. I could have had endless discussions with my friends about whether or not my boss was satisfied with my work. They could have tried a thousand ways of convincing me, listing all the good things I'd done, arguing that I was an excellent employee, pointing out one positive thing after another, but it wouldn't have worked. Inside, I would still have been convinced that he was dissatisfied with me, because that was what I thought I experienced whenever he was around. That was how I interpreted his glances, his pauses, his way of giving me instructions. But the moment he himself told me that he was happy, even offering me extra shifts, my conviction changed. Because at that moment, I had a new experience that readjusted my map of reality. Our map of reality is created by our experiences. And the only thing that can change our map of reality is new experiences. Unfortunately, as I've explained, this offers a challenge, because our map of reality is self-reinforcing. We use the experiences we've already had to understand fresh ones. Once we've begun perceiving a situation in a particular way, this perception becomes part of the filter we use to understand it, so we continue to interpret it in the same way, making it difficult to be rid of the unhelpful beliefs that get lodged in our minds, such as the idea that a particular person doesn't like us. My mom, for example has a big problem getting her car in and out of her driveway. She's never bumped into anything, never damaged the car or any cars nearby, and has never been prevented from going out or returning home. But her experience is, nonetheless, that the driveway is very problematic. Every time she needs to get in or out with the car, she expends huge amounts of energy on it. She talks about it, she worries about it, and she simulates a thousand catastrophes in her mind. When I ask her what exactly the problem is, I can hear that in her mind's eye she sees herself being able to drive directly up to the driveway, turn in without really slowing down, brake at the last moment, and leap out of the car. But my mom is over 70, and although she's a very dynamic person, things don't happen quite as quickly anymore as they did in the old days. In practice, this means that she needs to drive more slowly and with a little more care and attention. But that's not a problem, 
It's just the way she drives into the driveway. The only reason she thinks it's a problem is that she's comparing reality with her conception of it. And since the two don't match, she feels like something's wrong. In reality, nothing is wrong. In reality, there is no problem at all. But because of the way she looks at the situation, the problem is reconfirmed for her every time she goes in and out of the driveway. My mom could drive into her driveway a hundred times without any problems, and yet, to her mind, her difficulties would still be confirmed every time. Just like me with my boss at the video store until the day he offered me more shifts. So this is our challenge. The only way to change our beliefs is to have new experiences. But our map of reality is designed for stability. As such, it is a natural process for our brain to construct beliefs, but there's no corresponding natural process to break them down again. What do we do? We make an active effort. We consciously decide to re-examine our experiences to see if they are in fact as true as our automatic response system would have us believe. My mom could drive into the driveway a hundred times and her difficulties would be confirmed each time. Or, just once, she could explore what is actually going on when she goes in and out, but do so with an open mind. That is the crucial thing. And that is what the work is all about. The work is a way of questioning what we believe. An open and curious investigation into the stressful thoughts that are the real cause of our suffering. A way of putting question marks by the experiences we think we've had, allowing us to discover new possibilities besides the ones we are so painfully sure are true. Deliberately creating, one could say, the process I went through when my boss at the video store offered me more shifts and this new experience changed my map of reality and as such shifted my entire perspective. Let me share an example. Twenty years ago, having just founded my company, I was given one of my first big jobs. I was in my twenties, keen to prove myself and come across as professional and competent. My client was a large firm, and I met with one of the directors for a briefing, developed a concept for the workshop, and ping-ponged ideas back and forth with him as I sorted out all the details. The workshop, which focused on ways to handle stress and conflict, involved about 300 participants and went extremely badly. The whole setup was wrong. The participants were less able to work independently than I had been told, I had far too few assistants, and my workshop came immediately after a lecture that struck a totally different note, so none of them were prepared for the headspace I was trying to create. They were some of the most painful hours of my life. After the event, I met with the director again, and he informed me that he would only pay half the sum we had agreed because I hadn't delivered what I'd promised. He had to show the rest of the company that I accepted my share of the responsibility for the fact that the workshop didn't go well. I thought that was an unreasonable demand. I had worked hard, I had discussed things with him beforehand, and everything I had arranged was based on the information he had provided me. 
I had done my bit, putting in a lot of work, and I felt he was using me as part of his own internal game at the firm. I didn't want to fight with him over the money, so I agreed to his suggestion, but I left the meeting with a sense of injustice that remained with me for years. Every time I saw the company's logo somewhere, a wave of unpleasantness washed through me, and my fear of ending up in the same situation again was a source of stress every single time I took on jobs that reminded me of that one. This feeling stuck around for many years, before it suddenly dawned on me one day how much unpleasantness I was inflicting on myself by holding on to this story. Everybody else had long since forgotten all about it, and I was the only one still suffering from my insistence on being in the right. So I decided to explore the issue one more time. He treated me unfairly. Was that really true? When I stopped looking only for those things that confirmed my story and instead submerged myself in the experience with an open mind, I began to see a whole series of things I had previously been blind to. I could see myself as young and eager to seem competent and professional, and I could see how there had been a lot of uncertainties that I was too unsure of myself to probe more deeply. I realized that ultimately it was my responsibility to obtain the briefing I required. I was the one who knew what information I needed. How was he supposed to know that? On reflection, it even crossed my mind that he had in fact said he thought it all sounded a bit crazy, but that if I was sure it would work, he would trust me. And because I had been so busy trying to seem convincing and reliable, I had completely dismissed his concerns. Gradually, it became clear to me that insofar as mistakes had been made, I was the one who had made them. I was the one who hadn't done my job properly, and indeed I should be grateful he had offered to pay me as much as he did. In reality, the situation was the exact opposite of what I had thought. He hadn't treated me unfairly at all. Quite the contrary. I was the one who had treated him unfairly by clinging on to my negative story about him all those years. And I had treated myself unfairly, too, by clinging to my painful perception. It took nearly fifteen years before it occurred to me to question this story, look myself in the eye, and challenge my conviction that I was in the right. The process itself didn't take more than half an hour, and with it, came a physical wave of relief that was like a stone falling from my heart. A stone I had been carrying around for all that time. And it required nothing more than a willingness to look at the situation with an open mind and to discover that there may be other truths about what had happened than the one I was so desperately clinging to. We can't let go of our beliefs. We can't decide to change our map of reality. It's impossible, just as it's impossible to change our production of saliva simply by making up our minds to do so. But we can question our beliefs. We can examine them with an open mind. And when we do so, they let go of us. We see through them, and the second we do so, we stop believing them. 
Byron Katie uses a very illustrative example of walking in the desert and suddenly coming across a very dangerous snake lying there right in front of us, poised and ready to strike. The moment we see it, our entire system shifts to fight-or-flight mode. We panic. We are on max alert, DEFCON 1. And then, suddenly, we realize that it isn't a snake at all. It's just a piece of rope. That's all. And, of course, the minute we recognize this, we return from our state of heightened alert. It may take a few seconds for the biochemical reactions to wash out of our system, but we are no longer panicking. The fear is gone. All is well. And this is the first thing to notice. The change is immediate. It's not like we gradually become less afraid of the rope. The instant we realize it's just a rope, there is no more fear. The second thing to notice is, once we've seen that it's only a rope, we can't make ourselves afraid of it again. We can't convince ourselves back into believing that it's a snake. We cannot unsee what we've seen, so to speak. And this is the process of the work exactly. You believe there is a snake, you're stressed out, you investigate, and you realize it's just a rope. As I've explained in the earlier episodes, your world is a simulation. It's all interpretations, projections, constructs. In that sense... All snakes are always ropes. No beliefs can hold up when we confront them with reality and explore them with an open mind. Whenever you feel emotional stress or feel limited in your options, it's just the river that's frozen over. It's just a fixed perspective. It's never real. And the work allows us to see that. And as we involve our simulator in the process, we change our experiences, and with that our map of reality changes as well. This is one of the many things I love about the work. The process exploits functions that are already naturally inherent in us. Our nervous system is designed to construct and constantly readjust a map of reality based on our experiences. When we investigate our experiences with an open mind, we reshape them and thereby our map of reality changes. The work is not about actively installing different beliefs or trying to reprogram our unconscious mind through affirmations. It's much simpler than that. It's about becoming still and inquiring deeply into what we think we know in order to discover what is more true. It is an entirely organic process. For this same reason, we don't need to maintain anything afterwards. There's nothing to remember or retain, no need for self-discipline or any inner battles to fight once the work is done, because we are working with the system, not against it. We don't need to remind ourselves that the snake is a rope. We've seen it, and what we've seen won't suddenly become unseen. When my boss told me he considered me a good worker at the video store, it wasn't something I had to remind myself about later. My perception had altered. A new realization had arisen in my mind, making me think about my situation differently, look at it differently, and experience it differently. So I reacted differently. Just as I would react differently today if I met the director from the firm where I conducted my unsuccessful workshop, because I see the situation differently after having investigated it. 
As such, the challenge in the work is not to hold on to the changes that occur in our map of reality. Once my mother sees that there really isn't any problem with parking in the driveway, she isn't suddenly going to forget it later. The challenge is for her to get to the point where she can actually see that there isn't any problem. The challenge is for her mind to genuinely open. That is the key. And that is what the process is designed to do. To help our minds open. To support us in taking off our blinders so we can see things afresh, while at the same time activating our simulator so that our new perspectives do not just become an intellectual exercise, but become experiences that can change our map of reality. This is so vital that I hope you'll forgive me for repeating it. Two things are crucial for the work to work. That we become still enough to allow our minds to open and that we involve our simulator in the process so that we activate our entire nervous system, creating new experiences that can change our map of reality. I will speak more about how to achieve this in the How to Do the Work series. For now, here is a brief overview of the process. The work consists of three major parts. First, identifying your beliefs. Second, asking the four questions. And third, working with the turnarounds. Let's walk through them one by one. The first part of any work session is identifying the underlying beliefs that you're going to work on. In the example of my mother and her trouble with getting the car in and out of the driveway, her basic belief is, it is difficult to park the car in the driveway. The work offers several different ways of identifying the beliefs that are causing our difficulties. In my mother's case, her beliefs around the parking would be easy to pick up in any normal conversation with her. But sometimes it requires a little more work to find out exactly what it is that is causing our stress in part because, very often, our trouble isn't caused by one single belief, but rather by a cluster of different beliefs supporting and reinforcing each other. In my mother's case, it's not unlikely that there are other beliefs involved as well around getting older, having to slow down, etc. But for now, we will keep it simple and just stick to the one. Once we have identified the beliefs we are going to work on, the second part of the process is examining these beliefs using the four questions of the work. The four questions are, is it true? Can you absolutely know that it's true? How do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? Who would you be without that thought? Answering these questions have several important effects, one of which is to open our minds for the turnarounds to come in the third and final part by bringing to the surface the price we actually pay for believing what we believe. The problem is, as we've touched upon in earlier episodes, that human beings are extremely good at adapting. One of our adapting strategies is to try to minimize pain and suffering by attempting to suppress and hide from ourselves how painful certain parts of our lives really are. 
Someone who's trying to lose weight, for example, will be in a place of frustration as they strive towards their goal. This is healthy in the sense that the frustration fuels their commitment and their focus on the task. But if at some point they give up and begin to experience their overweight as an unchangeable condition in their life, staying in the state of frustration is not efficient. It is simply too painful. So instead, they begin to adapt to the situation by suppressing their frustration and cushioning themselves against the negative emotions they feel. From a limited point of view, this is a good strategy in the sense that it does achieve a reduction in the amount of stress we experience. But it also means that any motivation to change our situation will fade away in a variation of what American psychologist Martin Seligman called learned helplessness. Once we have adapted to something and begun to see it as a condition of life, we will stop looking for better solutions. So, in order to open our minds and see the potential benefits of a new perspective on our situation, i.e. to motivate our nervous system to work with the turnarounds, it helps to re-experience what it actually costs us to believe what we're believing. Hence the question, how do you react, what happens when you believe that thought? In the case of my mother, she would be investigating how much time and energy she spends on thoughts about the driveway, how much anxiety she really feels around it, how it sometimes stops her from doing things she actually wants to, etc. And once we have reactivated the pain, the next question, who would you be without the thought, allows us to visit a world of what it would be like to not carry this belief around. In the case of my mother, who would she be as she considered going for a spin without the thought that it's difficult to park the car in the driveway? What would her life with the car be like? What would her social life be like? What would happen to her anxiety levels without the thought? Experiencing the actual price of believing the thought and the potential benefit of letting go of it activates our nervous system and motivates us to look for better strategies. We want a way out, basically. And so, our minds open to the third part of the process, the turnarounds. This is the heart of the work. This is where we find our way out of the mental cul-de-sacs that are the true cause of our suffering. There are several different ways to turn thoughts around in the work. But the most straightforward is the turnaround to the opposite. In my mother's case, it is not difficult to park the car in the driveway. At this point, we are asked to find examples of how this turned-around statement is as true or truer than the original statement. This goes against everything our map of reality is intended to do. We are supposed to settle on a particular perspective and then stick to that unless something really dramatic happens. As such, especially for people who are new to the work, working with the turnarounds can be a bit of a challenge. So much more the emphasis on being thorough in the first two phases. Get really close to what you're believing so that the material you're working on is as precise as possible. And get really close to experiencing what believing these thoughts are actually costing you and what it would be like to be without them. 
And by getting really close, I mean get still. Go deep. Don't just think about it. Experience it. Enter your simulator and activate your entire nervous system in this work. As uncomfortable as it can sometimes be to revisit old wounds or face your own sense of shame at things you've done, it is the most effective way to open your thinking and allow new and more efficient strategies for handling your situation to surface. It's very easy to misunderstand the work and think it is a purely intellectual process. But that is a complete misperception. The work is more akin to a meditation, a deep experiencing of truth, a deep facing ourselves and the hidden structures that determine our behavior. Although what we observe when we see someone doing the work is very much a verbal process, what's really going on is a deep journey through our inner simulator, an investigation into the validity of the stories and conclusions we cling to, a reconfiguration of our nervous system, and it only works if we invest ourselves fully. I will speak to this in much greater detail when we get started on the How to Do the Work series. For now, I will simply describe the process as something that takes place in our entire body, not just in the head. In my mother's case, her task at this point is to find examples of how the statement it is not difficult to park the car in the driveway is as true or truer. And if she's been thorough in answering the four questions, her mind should be willing enough to actually want to look for honest examples. And the way to do this, then, is to get still, to revisit and re-experience what parking in the driveway is like and to begin to notice that there are in fact no actual problems involved when she's parking. That beyond all her thinking and worrying, everything goes exactly as planned. She knows when to turn the wheel, when to slow down, when to stop. There's room for people to pass along the side. The doors can open easily. She even knows how to handle the drive in the winter when there's snow or ice. She has, in fact, never had a single incident causing problems. It is not difficult to park the car in the driveway. And let me point out, my mother doesn't even need to get in her car to go through this process. All she has to do is use her simulator to take a second look at her experiences and work out what's actually going on inside and around her as she's heading into the driveway. That's enough to discover that her problem is an illusion, if she's willing to open her mind. When we do the work, our map of reality changes. And with it, the paths the marble can travel in our marble maze change too, opening up new possibilities in our mind. New possibilities in terms of how we look at the events that apparently happened in our past, new possibilities in terms of how we look at what might happen in the future, and, as a consequence, new possibilities in terms of how we handle what's happening right now in a more appropriate way. Imagine, for example, that you're a manager in a company and you have to inform an underperforming employee that she's being let go. It's a working environment where you know each other well, so you are aware that the employee is undergoing some challenges in her personal life. 
She's newly divorced, she has two small children, and she lives in a house which she can't really afford. For most managers, this situation would trigger some conflicting thoughts. Maybe you'd be thinking something along the lines of, she'll go to pieces if I fire her. It'll be a catastrophe for her. She'll never find another job at the same pay grade. She'll have to leave her home. If you believe these thoughts, letting her go will be a very unpleasant experience. The process will take up a lot of headspace, and when you give her the news, you'll be uncomfortable and ill at ease, for obvious reasons. After all, you believe you are about to send a woman packing into her worst nightmare. But the question is whether what you believe is actually true. Is it true that it would be catastrophic for her to be fired? Can you really know that it's true? How do you react when you believe the thought that it would be a catastrophe for her? You feel guilty. You feel trapped between your role as a boss and your perception of who you are as a person. One awful scenario after another pops up in your mind. You focus energy on pondering what you could do to ameliorate her problems. You put off the dismissal, creating a sense of frustration among the rest of the staff because they have to do extra work to correct her mistakes. And as such, you undermine your authority and engender mistrust in your abilities as a manager. When you actually have to deliver the news, you are unclear and flustered, becoming brusque and harsh in your attempts to hide your mixed feelings. Or perhaps you become apologetic, offering excuses and beating around the bush. You don't give her clear feedback about how things got to this point. Afterwards, you try to avoid meeting her in the corridor, and when you get home, you ransack the kitchen cabinets for anything sugary and feel uneasy the whole weekend. Moving on to question four. Who would you be if you didn't believe the thought that being fired would be a catastrophe for her? You would be calm, poised, kind, clear. You would be able to listen, consider her response, take your time. The process wouldn't siphon attention away from your other tasks. And you would be able to help organize farewell drinks, giving a good and honest speech in which you laud her many positive qualities. Having investigated your reactions using the four questions, you can move to the turnarounds and see that the truth is that the opposite could in fact be just as true, or maybe even more true. It would be a blessing for the employee to be fired. As things currently stand, she has a job she's not really qualified for. She's under constant pressure. Because of her living situation, she's always struggling to stay within her budget. She doesn't have enough time or energy for her children, she feels guilty about her colleagues, and she's only hanging on to the job because she needs the money. Being let go will liberate her from all of that. Yes, she may have to move, but can you know with certainty that it won't be the best thing that could happen for her? Can you know with certainty that a change of scene isn't exactly what she needs? A new job? New neighbors who don't know her from before the divorce, new colleagues. Nobody can tell the future. It doesn't exist, just like the past. All that exists are our thoughts about them. 
And the crucial question is, how are those thoughts affecting the way we live right now? How are our beliefs affecting our behavior at this moment? Because now is the only thing that exists. It's the only thing that has ever existed. The only thing you ever engage with. And the more of those limiting beliefs you see through, the less friction there is between you and what's going on around you, and the easier it is to act with clarity and effortlessness. If there's an employee who isn't doing a good enough job, there's nothing stopping you from noticing it, talking to her about it, and, if necessary, letting her go. If my job is to ensure that the department functions properly, and if my mind is clear, then none of my personal stories will get in the way of my ability to carry out that job. Which doesn't mean I'll become cold and uncaring. On the contrary, when I'm no longer getting in my own way with all my stories, I become someone who can be warm and connected while at the same time being direct and honest. This is when I become truly effective. Who would I have been when my boss came into the video store if I hadn't believed what I believed? He doesn't think I'm doing a good enough job. I need to get him to like me. All my problems were due to my beliefs and my attempts to manipulate the world according to them. Who would I have been if I'd been able to distinguish between fiction and reality? A young man putting videos on a shelf. A relaxed, friendly, obliging employee. The same goes for my other beliefs. Who would I be if I could see the mess in my children's rooms without all my beliefs? A man deciding whether he wants to clean up. They'll never learn. Is that true? What did my own room look like when I was a teenager? Who would I be if I could have a discussion with my girlfriend without thinking that her tone is disrespectful? A man who listens. When she raises her voice, it means she doesn't respect me. Is that true? Could it actually mean that she respects me enough to be honest? And even if it is true, who would I be if I realized that her stories have nothing to do with me? Who would you rather be fired by? A stressed out, unapproachable and muddled manager who tries to avoid you? Or a clear, accommodating and warm manager who gives a speech at your farewell drinks? The work is inquiry. It is a re-examination of what we believe to be true. An inner experiencing of a deeper understanding of what's going on. A dialogue, one could say, between our fast-paced, everyday, superficial and more or less automated consciousness and a deeper, calmer, more reflected part of our minds. It's like the difference between having an everyday, normal, small-talk chit-chat with somebody and then having a deep conversation with a close friend. Both of them are conversations, but the quality and attention and depth is very different. And the work is having that second type of conversation with yourself. So there's nothing complicated about doing the work. It's a very simple process. And yet, to say that something is simple and uncomplicated is not necessarily the same as saying that it's easy. The difficulties, however, are not so much in going through the motions of the work. You will very quickly learn how to collect your beliefs 
ask the questions and find the turnarounds. The challenge is in getting still, in going deep, in moving beyond the apparent and opening your mind to seeing what you've missed, what your filter of interpretation has sorted away. That is the challenge of the work. And in the How to Do the Work series, which I invite you to now, we will cover the basic structures of the tool itself, but we will also focus on how to best support that deeper aspect of the process, which is really what it's all about. So I hope you'll join me as we take the next step, moving on to the How to Do the Work series, where I will give you specific instructions that will enable you to develop and improve your own practice of the work. Until then, I am Ernest, and I am deeply grateful for your joining me so far on this journey towards peace, clarity, and the end of suffering. The work of Byron Katie is copyrighted by Byron Katie International. You can read more on www.thework.com. For more podcasts like this one, visit theartofbeinghuman.dk. And feel free to contact me if you have any questions or comments to this podcast. You can find my contact information at theartofbeinghuman.dk or you can simply send an email to ernest at kavm.dk. That is ernest at kiloalphavictormike.dk. Thank you for listening.